we've got you know broad range of hybrids, plug-in hybrids. We've got battery electric vehicles in different parts of the world, and we'll develop them for North America. We've got hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. We think it's actually a combination of all of those different technologies that gets you to your end goal on carbon reduction faster. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 092, number 92 of the Flux Capacitor. My guest on today's podcast is... Stephen Beatty, Vice President, Toyota Canada, Inc. Stephen joined me for a deep dive on policy options for decarbonizing transportation. As a representative of the world's largest car company and the biggest manufacturer of cars in Canada, Stephen shares a critique of zero-emission vehicle mandates and suggests alternative policy options to achieve decarbonization of transportation. We talk about the best technology for which application, touch on the future of hydrogen, and how e-fuels may be part of our future. We close the conversation with his recommendation for an addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Stephen Beatty, recorded on Zoom in early February 2024. Stephen, it's great to get you on the podcast. It was terrific to have you at our event back in November, but it'll be nice to do a little bit of a kind of a a long-form conversation. Well, and I'm I'm so happy to be uh, invited to do this because, uh, you know, we've been talking about what I think are really transformational issues here in Canada, and and it's great to have a longer-form conversation about it. Yeah, so listen, why don't we start at, and it may seem an odd place to start, but um, I I spent a little bit of time with one of your colleagues this week, and I learned new things about Toyota and Toyota Canada. So maybe for the listener, just, uh, you know, just a quick introduction on Toyota and Toyota in Canada. Okay, well, um, the, the distinction between Toyota and Toyota in Canada is, is, is important because even in Canada, there are multiple Toyotas. Um, okay. So let me, let me just drop back for a moment. Uh, we are, as a global corporation, the largest automaker in the world, but we're not just limited to automobiles. We, uh, we operate across a wide range of different products and services, including in places like Japan, um, manufactured housing. So uh, when, when you look at uh, when you look at the patents that Toyota holds in energy, mobility, um, production technologies, um, all of all of these things come together. And uh, the insights that we draw from one industrial sector tend to help another. And, okay. and that really goes all the way back to our roots, having started as a textile machinery company. Um, and that carries forward to today, where the um, the uh, carbon fiber that's used in uh, in uh, uh, the tanks for our hydrogen fuel cell car are produced by a Toyota company. So, oh. um, you know, we we are constantly focusing on new problems, uh, learning from you know how how to solve those problems, and then applying those lessons in other other parts of our business, and. That's probably a good segue to Toyota in Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. We started off 
60 years ago um, as a multi-brand distributor of vehicles in Canada. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just Toyota. It was a number of other companies that were serviced by a company called Canadian Motor Industries. But over time, it became apparent that the brand that really had the um, had the connection with Canadian consumers and the, and the sort of staying power was Toyota. Mm -hmm. And so the company morphed into Toyota Canada Inc. Um, mm -hmm. at, at, that, at that point, we were also assembling vehicles in Nova Scotia, uh, in part for the Canadian market, but also for uh, export to the Caribbean. But these were what were known as uh, CKD units, complete knockdowns. In other words, they, they were sort of like getting a model kit and assembling it yeah. in a local factory. Um, the real manufacturing um, really kicked off in the in the 80s with uh, with the launch of Toyota Motor Manufacturing Canada. And those facilities in Cambridge, Ontario and Woodstock are now the largest um, producers of automobiles in Canada, mm -hmm. having made well, close to 530,000 uh, vehicles last year. So when you think about you know, our sales, which are um, maybe 230,000 units a year, uh, we're very clearly a large net exporter of vehicles from this country. And, uh, and we're very proud of the, the quality levels that we're able to achieve here. So um, as we start looking at transportation and energy issues, we have to look at them uh, certainly in terms of how we service our Canadian customers. We look at it in terms of the infrastructure that we need to be a manufacturer in this country. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have to look at it as part of an integrated North American marketplace because the majority of what we make here is, is shipped to the United States. So, right. um, you know, as we start to look to the future, um, you're, you're managing all of those different variables as you, uh, you know, as you try to think about how to approach the types of mobility needs that uh, you know that 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 larger North American market is going to need over the next few years, right? And then I just want to just want to circle back uh, to to clarify because uh, I think it's uh, I found that uh, an interesting data point. Um, you know, I, I think back to when I was a kid, and you know, we talked about you know the the big three automakers uh, here in North America, the big three auto manufacturers. So Toyota Canada is manufacturing more vehicles than any of those companies in, in Canada right now. Yeah, in any given recent year, we've um, we've manufactured more each year than uh, at least two of the three, and in some years, all three of the of the Detroit-based companies. Wow. Um, and as I said, that's a that's a record point that we're we're extraordinarily proud of, and it couldn't happen without an incredibly dedicated Canadian workforce. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I ask uh, people that come on the podcast about is uh, is their journey. So very, very interested to hear what your journey was to, to the role that you've got uh, you've got today. So um, I'll, I'll run through that, but it's actually the first job that I had out of university that connects up with, I think, where we're going to go in the, in the conversation today. OK. And that is that I, I came out of uh, out of uh, undergraduate. Um, and uh, went to work for the member of parliament for Bruce Gray. Ah, uh, this was 1979. Mm -hmm. We had a um, uh, we had a rather short-lived uh, government at the time. Yep. But if you remember the 1970s, you'll know that uh, we'd gone through two major oil shocks mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, in, in the 70s. And in 1979, one of the major issues in front of the government was this question of 
how do we ensure energy security in Canada? So um, the uh, prime minister then set up a, an internal advisory committee on energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, my MP, who, whose riding happened to you know, include the Bruce, um, was one of the members of that. And so some of the early work that I did uh, coming out of university was on uh, looking at, at those questions of energy security. Mm. And it's, it's sort of funny to me that, um, of course, because of the Bruce, we were busy talking about what role hydrogen might play in a future you know, energy economy in Canada. This was back in 1979. This was back in 1979. And, wow. and the point of this story actually is this, that I, I, I came across that report some years ago. And I think it, we were predicting that you know, 25 years from then, we would be wholly in the era of the hydrogen economy. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, about that amount of time has passed again, um, but it's starting to feel real. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but the real takeaway from this is not not this question of um, of hydrogen, but rather the kind of global economic factors that come into play in terms of energy security, in terms of mm-hmm. making energy transition, all of the things that frankly are you know top of mind today. Anyway, after, um, you know, after that role, I went on to become the uh, chief procedural expert for the, uh, for the Conservative Party, uh, first in opposition and then in government, um, finishing up there as chief of staff to the Ministry of Justice, and uh, left government and went to work for the uh, clothing industry. And this was just after the free trade agreement. Right. And um, some things that have been quite devastating to the uh, to the apparel industry, which at the time was one of the top 10 employers in the country. Um, and as we started to work through those trade issues, we wanted the industry to pivot toward a brand-driven exporting base. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've been quite successful, obviously, in, in maintaining some companies that do have those strong brands and have, have built global, global brand presence. Um, Having done that for a number of years, and because um, sectors like agriculture and textiles and apparel are, you know, some of the first traded goods on a global scale, uh, it's it's one of the places where you develop uh, trade expertise in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it just so happened that at the end of the '90s, Toyota was busy looking for somebody with trade expertise to try to deal with some outstanding issues from the, from the free trade agreement and, uh, and, you know, uh, look at overhauling the, uh, auto pact. Okay. So, right. um, you know, there was the logical shift then of going from, uh, clothing to cars. Uh, but it was that, it was that trade, um, it was that trade connection. Um, while I was hired for that purpose, the question I was asked by, the then Japanese president of the company was, um, you know, what does it take to really become a Canadian company? How long do you have to be here? What, what do you, what do you need to do? Mm-hmm. And my answer to that was, you know, if the question is, can you out Canadian, um, you know, the Detroit companies, uh, then my, my, you know, top of top of mind answer would be no, because there's so many Canadians who have, uh, you know, a, a, a family connection to those companies or, you know, have driven their vehicles for years and so forth, that, that 
you know, to go back and to change the perception of, of those other companies, it just isn't on. Mm-hmm. But really, Canadians are very open-minded. They're very accepting of, um, of people and ideals from around the world. And for me, the, the challenge for Toyota was to answer the question, what have you done for me lately? Um, because that's what matters, right? It's not, it's not a lot of history. It's about where are you today and where are you headed? And, you know, our, our manufacturing presence was growing. The, um, the vehicles that we were selling were very popularly priced. They were fuel efficient. Mm -hmm. Um, we were beginning to lead into areas that, you know, I felt were strongly connected to kind of future values that were important to Canadians. And uh, my arrival at Toyota coincided with something that was really unusual, which was uh, seven right-hand drive, rather funny-looking little cars showed up um, with the Japanese equivalent of a sticky note on the windshield saying, see if anybody wants these. Um, (laughs) That, of course, was the first first mass-produced hybrid. The, yeah. the, the Prius for the Japanese market. Yeah. Um, Prius was interesting, and it's, it's part of why, um, you know, I bleed Toyota red today. It was a design concept. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was the company having dropped back and said, what will the, you know, what will a driver in the early stages of the next century um, need in, in the way of personal mobility? And the answer that they came back with was, well, we need something that has low emissions. We want it to be uh, something that's accessible, particularly for an aging population. Mm-hmm. So that defined a lot of the design um, uh, characters of, characteristics of the vehicle. We want something that's easy to, um, to pull apart at the end of life so that we can, we can recycle it. Mm-hmm. And we want to think about new technologies and materials because we think they're, they're going to be important because they also have a, an environmental impact that if our plan to mobilize the world is, uh, is successful, you know, we can't do that by simply having linear growth of the type of models that we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was this design study. It was something that had Japanese values very much baked into it in terms of the, you know, the notion of, of, efficiency and the packaging and attention to detail that came with the car mm-hmm. but it was very strange for a marketplace that you know was was tilting toward larger and larger vehicles right um and i i will say that the first response in north america was a fair amount of laughter about well you know how silly putting both a gasoline engine and an electric motor in a car that could never work and it just sounds complicated and you know it's likely to break down. Um, I spent a lot of time for a couple of years um, with these vehicles going coast to coast in Canada, going to environmental organizations and uh, um, including alongside of David Suzuki on one of his tours. And our job at that point was simply to, you know, to speak to people and say, look, we know the future can't be like the past. Mm-hmm. And we're not here to tell you we have a solution, but we think it's one of the pathways that, you know, leads us toward that future. And we want you to take a look at it and tell us what you think. Um, 
and I think, you know, there, there are moments in your career that are really rewarding. That was one of them where mm. you had the opportunity just to say, hi, I'm not here to sell you anything. I'm here to talk. And, um, uh, and it was a, it was a very interesting process uh, as we, as we went through that, learned a lot and um, made the decision that in fact, the, you know, that Canada and other parts of the world were ready for a different approach to transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the takeaways that I have from that, though, is it takes a really long time for technology to find its feet. Mm. Um, so there are always early adopters of anything. The, the people who just want the latest, greatest technology, and they'll pay any premium. And that's great. And frankly, um, you know, the world needs the early adopters because they help to, to, to provide the proof of concept. They're the people who help you to scale up production. They're the people who do all of the things that prepare the marketplace. But the mainstream market, particularly here in Canada, is quite conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you can imagine, I, I mean, historically, our disposable income has not been as high as the United States, for example. Yeah. yeah. And so when people make a decision about buying a car, um, you know, they're going to want to make sure that it's something that'll hold up and give them good value and do all the things they need it to do. Um, certainly at that time, you know, maybe the most popular vehicle in the marketplace was minivan because it just mm-hmm. provided such incredible value and versatility for, you know, for the typical Canadian family. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the world's changed. The types of vehicles people are driving have changed. But um, the takeaway from, from all of that was it's possible to um, drive a more efficient model. So if I think about the arc between the late 90s and today, um, you know, we were a small car company. Uh, we were seen as, you know, uh, incredibly uh, um, fuel efficient and, um, and long lasting. Um, the market has declared itself. It wants larger all-wheel drive vehicles. The technologies that are in those vehicles are much greater. The amount of energy that we need to use to drive those technologies is higher, yeah. but our need to reduce emissions has gotten, you know, you know, more severe as each as each year has gone by. And it's interesting to me that the last of the subcompact vehicles that we sold in Canada had uh, worse fuel economy than one of our three-row full-sized hybrid SUVs today. Wow. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it, it is possible to solve for any problem, but it just it takes a little while. And ultimately, the only way to get to the right outcome is to focus on customer needs and then say, all right, if if that's what they need for their lifestyle, then how do we engineer to solve that problem for them? Mm-hmm. And that that's mm-hmm. what it is all about. Yeah, yeah. When when you uh, joined. Uh our event in November, our Power and Partnerships event, I, I was struck by one of your comments um, talking about zero emission vehicle mandates. And I, I think I've got the quote right. You said, amidst all the number crunching, policymakers somehow conflated GHG reductions uh, with battery and battery electric vehicle manufacturing and sales. Can, can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Sure. So um... it was very, I thought it was very provocative. <laughs> <laughs> it may have been uh, may have been intended to be provocative, but um, 
I think the thing to think about is this. Um, it's really important in the field of public policy to be clear about what your objectives are. Yeah. And, um, you know, for those of us who've been working in this space for a long time, you know, our, our views on climate change in particular have got to be to move to a, you know, to a, to, to a net zero carbon environment. Mm-hmm. And that is really about trying to marshal the technologies that are necessary to be able to deliver solutions to consumers that, that, that deliver on that, that carbon promise. Um, one of those technologies would be battery electrics, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily the, you know, the preferred technology for a given customer or a given duty cycle. Right. But in this case, you'll see that the zero emission policies in Canada, whether at the provincial level or federally, are all really tagged toward driving out battery electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising that uh, in the province of Quebec, where there's been a desire for a long time now to create a battery industry and to go from minerals to mobility, that you know, at the provincial level, they've, they've been building their policy structure in a way that would favor battery electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that um, Quebec believed it had a large surplus of hydroelectricity on the grid, that even made sense from you know, from a, a sort of circle economy in the yeah. sense that, yeah. you know, if you can build the vehicles, lo- if you can build the battery and the mining locally and you can power it with local um, green energy off the grid, well, you know, that's great. How, you know, what a fantastic benefit for the economy. Um, but I would just say that anytime that you try to hit multiple policy objectives at the same time, mm-hmm. you're going to end up compromising some things. And so, what we had been saying to the Canadian government as they were busy looking at their ZEV mandate was this. We're looking at vehicles getting larger and heavier. Um, we're looking at you saying that you want um, battery electric vehicles to dominate in this environment. And we're looking at the, at the timelines or major milestones that you've set out. Of course, you know, getting smaller vehicles as possible, getting, you know, um, getting carbon down to certain levels by certain target dates as possible. Um, you know, scaling up battery electric vehicles is possible, but how likely is it that we're going to have all of the critical factors line up at once and Mm -hmm. allow you to, um, you know, to successfully get past the finish line in 2030 or 2035. So what we said was, look, we've got you know a broad range of hybrids, plug-in hybrids. We've got battery electric vehicles in different parts of the world, and we'll develop them for North America. We've got hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Um, we think it's actually a combination of all of those different technologies that gets you to your end goal on carbon reduction faster. And so um, why not have a federal standard around greenhouse gas emissions rather than uh, making it a zero emission vehicle policy. And what I mean by that is both policies end up at the same place. Uh, you know, if you, if you zero out tailpipe emissions, mm-hmm. um, then by definition, everything's a zero emission vehicle. Right. Um, if you focus, but, but what that allows you to do is to drive the cheapest, most ubiquitous technologies first 
And in a market transition that's driven by people paying, you know, for vehicles with their own money, mm -hmm. that's really important that you have flexible and low cost technologies. Um, if you want us to do it using battery electric vehicles, then what it means is we have to go from um, producing literally millions of, of, uh, of hybrids uh, to a much smaller volume of battery electric vehicles. And the result of that is in a, in a period before you have a fully developed supply chain, mm -hmm. um, you're actually going to have a worse carbon footprint, right? Because it takes so much more battery mass to, um, to power that battery electric vehicle than it does to hybridize vehicles or to create a plug-in hybrid. So I right. can create right. multiples of my hybrids for every one battery electric vehicle that's, that's, that's built. So this kind of goes back to that, that, that the, the, the idea that the average consumer doesn't really need a 300, 400 kilometer range that a, a battery electric vehicle pr provides, but maybe a 50 to 60 kilometer range that a plug-in hybrid uh, would, uh, would deliver? As an example, or that for people who don't have infra infrastructure that really can support their um, a plug-in strategy at this point, that yeah. it might make sense for them to go with a hybrid as opposed to a gasoline vehicle. Gotcha. And also that you need to look at the composition of the fleet. <laughs> so um, <laughs> early on in, in, in my conversations with Quebec around this, I, the point that I made was, hey, look, you guys are pushing a zero emission vehicle strategy, which is fine, but I don't think you understand that Quebec, which had to that point resisted the shift away from small cars, was just starting to move to SUVs. Right. So um, what, were the, what were the early battery electric vehicles that were available? They were mostly small sedans. Mm -hmm. So well, you had a perverse situation in the province of Quebec early in their ZEV mandate where um, the vehicles that um, were taken out of the marketplace by the ZEV standard and incentives were actually already small fuel-efficient vehicles. Hmm. Meanwhile, the rest of the market was shifting toward, uh, uh, toward trucks and, US and, and SUVs. So the delta uh, for shifting from, um, I don't know, a, a Toyota Yaris to a, uh, to a Leaf um, it, it was there. You can certainly measure it, but it was relatively small. Right. When you think that somewhere else somebody was moving from, uh, from you know, a Yaris or a Corolla into a pickup truck. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, again, we were saying, look, you, you, you need to be very careful about how you build your policies because we think you're going to actually have carbon emissions going up in the near future in Quebec, even with a ZEV mandate. And mm -hmm. that's, that's what happened. Now, eventually, um, eventually the regulations cut and, you know, it has an impact on the, on the market. But if you look around the streets today, I challenge you to, you know, to figure out where all the small cars have gone. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of different reasons why that happened. One was just bad environmental policy. Mm -hmm. uh, but the second one is that if you're going to lead into the marketplace with your most expensive technologies um, and, um, and those technologies are profit challenged mm. as, 
as the early battery electric vehicles have been, what, what is a company most likely to do? Well, it's going to sell whatever else it can sell at the, you know, at the higher end, higher margin end of the spectrum. So in, in a curious and perverse and you know, one of those unintended consequences of public policy, uh, our, our drive toward putting zero emission vehicles on the road has actually um, given further impetus to, to the deployment of larger vehicles. Right. And then that becomes a nasty feedback loop where people get used to driving large vehicles mm-hmm. so that when it's time for them to turn to an electric car. Um, they want a Hummer. <laughs> well, I don't, I'm not sure they want a Hummer, but they want, they want something that's, something that's big. big and, yeah, yeah. Um, and unfortunately, moving all that mass around you, requires a lot of energy. Yep. And that means a big battery and a big battery adds more weight. So uh, then, then you just, you know, well, it just keeps going. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So here's what I learned back in the 1970s. And this is why I attempt to bring it full circle. Efficiency matters. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, what we really need to be looking at is we, we look forward to the, to the future is we need smaller, more efficient vehicles. We need to think about the duty cycles that people, you know, use their cars in. Um, I suspect that cars are, you know, will continue to become more expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may, you know, we may not see as many in a given driveway. Um, and from ownership, you'll see more usership where, you know, a family might have a car and then uses, you um, ride hailing, uses car sharing, right. uses some other form to, to yeah. be able to fill in. Um, and in that sort of urban loop, uh, you know, battery electrics are ideal. They, they work really, really well. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to why they don't deploy, but they're ideal for that type of application. Right. For, um, you know, for transporting uh, goods long distances, uh, battery electrics aren't very good. Yeah. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, because you want to have uh, high uptime if you are running a commercial um, a commercial fleet. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, uh, running long distance requires, again, large batteries, and with that, very long um, recharge times, which again becomes downtime on the mm-hmm. you know on, on the transport of goods. Mm. Two, the batteries themselves are heavy, so they take away from the payload capacity of a truck. Yeah. Um, so in that space, we happen to think that hydrogen, you know, will play an important role as we're as we're looking toward, um, you know, green road transportation. So mm-hmm. one end, lightweight, you know, urban transport, battery electric, long range, heavy transport, um, hydrogen makes sense, and a host of things in the middle, including the potential for um, for plug-in hybrids for the people who live in some sort of um, who have have you know co- combination needs. So you live in the city and um, you know do a reasonable commute every day. You can do it in full electric mode on a, mm-hmm. a plug-in hybrid. Mm-hmm. But then you end up uh, like I do, um, you know, going up to Bancroft on the on the weekend, right. and uh, um, you know particularly in winter, needing the you know the extra range and capability that a that the gasoline side of a plug-in hybrid can can give you. Um, 
so it will dramatically reduce the emissions out of the vehicle while also giving you the peace of mind of knowing that you can you yeah. can actually serve that need. Yeah. So it's it's that balancing act that I think we're going to have to go through. And and you know, please, I hope nobody listening to this misunderstands us. Um, there is no path to the future of transportation that does not go through electrification. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's whether it's producing greater efficiency out of existing powertrain by electrifying, whether it is going fully electric or battery electric, rather, whether it's going electric in the form of green hydrogen used through uh, through uh, fuel cells in those heavy duty trucks, right, or uh, whether it's doing something that you know we find really intriguing, which is keeping internal combustion alive, uh, but running it on hydrogen or, or right. e-fuel. Right. Yeah, yeah. And in both cases, um, you know, fuels that we anticipate are going to be produced by um, um, through, through an electric process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, I wanted to ask you about that when you were talking about um, – transportation uh, of, of goods over long distances and hydrogen, uh, whether it's a, it's a future that is uh, a hydrogen fuel cell or a hydrogen internal combustion or some other. So it sounds as though you, you, you see that many potential pathways may achieve what it is that we want to achieve in that space. Well, that's, that's, that's our view. And, and so I'm saying that from the, you know, from the vehicle side, we, yeah. You know, I think the one thing that we've learned ever since the days of Henry Ford is that, uh, you know, the strategy of, of making one type of vehicle and painting it black um, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't quite work. Um, you know, our, our customers are diverse. Yeah. Uh, their needs are diverse. And the types of vehicles that they drive, whether they're in commercial applications or personal applications, are, are you know, are pretty broad. Mm-hmm. So, each one of those technologies has a sweet spot where it's, you know, what's where it's best for that application. What, yeah. what I would put into a taxi fleet would be different from what I might drive as a, you know, as an individual uh, driver. Uh, and certainly is different from the needs of somebody who's running heavy equipment at a mine site or, uh, or running long distance uh, uh, heavy transport. So um, I think we need all of those tools in our toolbox. Um and the thing that worries me, and this goes all the way back to public policy again, is if you create a regulation which by its very nature specifies a single pathway, mm. um, it, 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 it can kill promising technology before that ever has a chance to get off the ground. Right. And what I mean by that is you know, <laughs> um, I can't I can't, uh, on behalf of our company, invest in things where I can't demonstrate a, a good return to our business. Sure. And at Toyota Canada, we're in the business of selling um, passenger vehicles to, uh, to the retail marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I can talk about, uh, about heavy-duty trucks and so forth, our technologies going to that space. But there is literally no mechanism for me to um, bring that back into our business and assist our core responsibility of serving our retail light duty vehicle customer. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you sit down with regulators and they say, well, you know, this, this is where we see the, 
the promise today and if something changed, we can always change the regulation. Well, it's fine. But if your zero emission mandate um, rules out from the start an internal combustion engine, there's no way for me to get to that e-fuel. Uh, I see. Yeah. Right? There's, there's just literally no pathway for me to, right. to, to invest in the, um, in the production of that fuel and the infrastructure designed to deliver it or really to continue uh, delivering vehicles with an internal combustion structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to ask in, in, in that context then, uh, in an ideal world, uh, if, if, uh, if we were, if we were, um, you know, starting, starting from scratch from a public policy standpoint, uh, if we didn't, uh, go the direction as we have so far with the zero emission vehicle mandates, what, what would a, a, a what would a, a, a more efficient pathway to decarbonize transportation look like? So it would do several things. One is, um, you know, I, I'm not sure how, you know how how much the public understands this, but there are actually um, three main different standards that that impact in this space in the United States. For example, you, you've got zero emission vehicle rules at the state level, mm-hmm. but you also have GHG rules. You've got fuel economy rules. You've got tailpipe emissions rules. Right. And um, and anything coming out of the tailpipe correlates with um, you know, with certain types of technologies. So uh, from that standpoint, a GHG rule that moves you toward, um, you know, substan- substantive percentage reductions in GHG um, will mandate, uh, in essence, a, a, a mix of technologies that you'll need to deploy across your fleet in order to be able to achieve those reductions. Mm-hmm. Um, for some companies that are specialized in EVs, it might mean you know higher higher uptick of EVs in their lineup. In other cases, it could be uh, plug-in hybrids. It could be any number of things. It's it's how you how you mix and match in order to ensure that you're you're achieving those year-over-year reductions in your fleet from uh, you know from on a, on a carbon basis. And of course, as that as those milestone targets move towards zero. Then you've got a um, you know you've got a very clear pathway to to eliminate carbon emissions. What that does, though, is it also says to the industry uh, instead of instead of picking a single technology, go out and give it your best thinking mm-hmm. and figure out how you want to do this. And you know if you're wrong, well that's on you because <laughs> you still have to meet the uh, the, the tailpipe rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're right, uh, you might be able to deliver something more efficiently at a lower cost that consumers will respond to. Um, and so that's really where we've we've been through this whole process. And we're, you know, honestly, I think down the road we will see some of those flexibilities creep into into uh, Canadian regulation. Mm-hmm. But it's not the most efficient way of going about this. Um, so. Why do I care about it? Well, uh, let me let me tackle this from two ways. We all know that one of the greatest concerns for people who are looking at buying a battery electric vehicle today, right, are, is can I charge it, mm-hmm. and what sort of range will I have? Um, well, that's 
that's really a couple of different, well, it's probably three different questions, but, but, you know, at its heart on the energy side, it's, will there be enough electricity? And two, how will I get it from the grid into my car? Um, I think there's an enormous amount of effort that has to go in in the next, in the next few years for us to be able to deploy electric vehicles at scale to be able to hit the, uh, you know, the ZEV mandates and still maintain large volume sales of cars in this country. Mm. Um, because keep in mind, the ZEV mandate isn't a requirement to bring a certain number of battery electric vehicles to the market, for example. It is to keep a ratio between your ZEV and non-ZEV sales. Mm-hmm. And because we, and because this isn't a financial penalty, it's a criminal penalty, you have no choice. You, you, you need to maintain that ratio or, you know, or exceed it in, you know, in, in favor of zero emission vehicles mm-hmm. or face, uh, face sanctions. Okay, so if for whatever reason, the, uh, either the infrastructure and energy side of this or the, um, the capability of the vehicles themselves somehow fall below consumer expectations and the market doesn't accept battery electric vehicles at a rate that would keep uh, current sales uh, volumes alive, mm-hmm. we have no choice but to reduce the number of non-electric vehicles that we sell. Right. That's that's okay. the only response there is to to a to a ZEV mandate if the you know if if the secret sauce doesn't work and we have the right vehicle at the right price with the right you know with the right availability of energy. Mm-hmm. So um, that's where I say you know give us more give us more technology tools to play with. So um, I, I think the infrastructure issue is a critical one. Um, where we have uh, been able to roll out fuel cell uh, fuel cell vehicles in this country, it's because we've been able to partner um, either through clean fuel initiatives or through other programs to be able to build hydrogen fueling stations. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to get it fully understood that um, it, it, this this is one of those cases where vehicles and infrastructure have to advance at the same pace mm-hmm. right and you know as, as you'll appreciate whether you know whether you're a power company or whether you're a you know a, a gasoline retailer you're not going to build new infrastructure if there doesn't appear to be you know market demand for yeah. uh, for your product so that's where you know our being able to go in and say all right we will guarantee um We'll guarantee a volume of hydrogen, or we will build, you know, certain infrastructure. Um, uh, you know, give us the upfront credits on that, and we'll we'll build the infrastructure, and we'll deliver the vehicles against that infrastructure. And you know, we're happy to to make that 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 happen. Or two, um, if it's about uh, uh, if it's about carbon emissions from transportation as a whole, let me go out and target those parts of the transportation system that have the highest emissions mm-hmm. and transfer credits from that to, you know, the vehicles that are sitting in people's driveways most of the time. Mm-hmm. Not moving. Um, so for example, um, you know, let me go out and uh, find zero emission opportunities in taxi fleets and ride hailing and heavy duty trucks, 
city buses, whatever else, and move those credits across the transportation system so that we can do it at the lowest cost and greatest efficiency for people. Or, and this is the final one, um, you know, you know, the century plus that the auto industry has been working on internal combustion engines, we've gotten really good at it and they're relatively inexpensive. Um, if we can create, um, you know, if we can create the hydrogen infrastructure that allows for an internal combustion hydrogen vehicle, mm -hmm. the vehicle itself will be very affordable. Right. Uh, because really all that we have to do is to put in new injectors and, uh, and have fuel tanks for the, for the hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, um, you know, the system's the system. It all works the way that your current vehicle does. Uh, but in that case, it's the you know it's 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 putting that infrastructure in place. It probably means having to uh, do the investments that are necessary to build out that heavy duty in infrastructure along major corridor routes mm -hmm. where transport trucks run. Mm -hmm. Putting in hubs in cities to fuel buses and taxis and so forth, and then from there the the rest of it just just expands into a sort of spider web of fueling points. Right. The, 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 the thing that really gets me excited, though, is the notion of, uh, of e-fuels. Mm -hmm. So you take that same green hydrogen that mm -hmm. you'd, you'd put in the rest of the transportation system, and using you know, direct carbon capture from the air, yep, that you're using to store carbon, yeah. Yeah. Um, you create a, a net zero carbon fuel. Mm -hmm. And that can be dropped in as a direct replacement for gasoline or diesel. Yep. So it means not only that, you know, all of those new cars could be net zero emitters, but anything that currently has a small engine in it from a lawnmower through to a boat, to a snowmobile, to a leaf blower, to you name it, um, could suddenly be cleaned up as a result of, of taking an electric, an electricity based solution in creating mm -hmm. a hydrocarbon that was uh, that was net zero, it's it's a it's an incredible space, um, and I, I don't know when you when you speculate about the stuff. We know what the technology can do. It's it's easy to demonstrate, mm -hmm. but the question is, you know, what's affordable when and do people see the value in it? Well, again, that's that's why we're in business. As we go out and we try to figure out on behalf of our customers what the best solution is. I think we need to take as broad-based um, an approach to this as possible. However, let me, let me just loop back on infrastructure because this is, I think, one of the places where the, where the government's current strategy is going to go off the rails. There is a lot of conversation about how uh, it's the inadequacy of DC fast chargers in this country that is holding back electric vehicle sales. Hmm. And yes, we need more DC fast chargers. Yes, we need you know uh, those chargers uh, to be more affordable. But the problem isn't that. The problem predominantly is this we know that the cheapest and most convenient way for people to charge up their electric vehicles to do it at home. But there are a lot of people with a lot of homes that have no access to charging yep. capacity. Yeah. So 
as an example, I, you know, I, I own a condo and I'm on a committee in the condo that um, has been working on, on electrifying the garages. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we've come up with a really good solution. I think it's by in relative terms affordable, but it's a lot more expensive than, um, than it is for a single family home. Sure. Uh, it requires a whole lot more collaboration <laughs> than a single family home. And in some cases, particularly where buildings are in, you know, in underserved parts of the grid, uh, the cost of upgrading the supply to the building may be so high as to make it prohibitive to, uh, to, to someone looking to, you know, to put a charger in their parking space. So um, my, my request repeatedly of the federal government is um, don't walk away from MERBs. It's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, th- these are people's homes. Uh, they're MERBs, large MERBs being, being multi-unit multi-unit residential buildings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, these are people's homes. They're mm-hmm. in, in those places where you would think that an electric vehicle would have its greatest application. Yeah. Uh, but they're people for whom an electric vehicle is out of reach unless they're prepared to go to a public fast charger. Yeah. And, um, and so your, um, you know, your task of building the, the fast charging network is also addressed if you can get more people to be able to charge at home. Mm-hmm. My, my, you know, sort of thought around this is really being driven by something that's hiding in plain sight in the data about car sales at the moment. And that is that electric vehicle sales are doing really well in what I might refer to as the Goldilocks zones around major cities. Mm-hmm. So the people who are in, in commuting range of a major city, um, a, um, uh, an electric vehicle is almost ideal because you know, they've, they largely live in single family homes or they've got a dedicated parking space yep. where they can charge. Uh, they're not going such distances that they need to stop and charge, you know, on, on their, on their daily uh, commute. And um, the result of that is that you're seeing some places in the lower mainland in BC where you're getting, um, you know, up to 40% um, um penetration of mm-hmm. electric vehicles into new car sales. Well, mm-hmm. that's that's fine. But you move in either direction from that from that Goldilocks zone, either into the downtown core of the city or out into the countryside, and suddenly yeah. the infrastructure, you know, uh, goes the wrong way. You can put a lot of investment into into rural Canada um, for much lower um, you know total payback or you figure out how to deal with that issue in the, you know, in, in, in the cities. And I, I would just say that, you know, part of the argument to date has been, well, you know, people living in cities don't need cars. They can just use public transit. Hmm. The, the difficulty is, um, you know, even if that was ever true, but public transit has had a bit of a rocky uh, story in the, in the last several years, but mm-hmm. post COVID with the way that, people work and commute um it has changed transportation patterns in a in a big way yeah and it's why as i said as we look at this we say to ourselves all right uh, we think we think car ownership is going to change we think the usership model is going to continue to grow uh we think that um, battery electrics make a lot of sense in those urban urban environments but then 
it's the charging infrastructure and you know wherever you live um it comes down to uh, and particularly in the downtown core of cities how's the grid stack up on the local on the local level to um uh you know to handling that that charging if you do have uh, a place to park outside of your home or two how do you get charging into those uh multi-unit residential buildings that today have have been pretty resistant to uh to electrification so uh, those are the things that we you know as, on a societal level and as a, a transportation planners and uh, as somebody who wants to sell cars to people uh, i need to crack that problem right yeah Listen, Stephen, uh, you've, you've been very generous with your time, but this one last question that I ask everybody that comes onto the podcast, um, we, we, ask, uh, we ask the podcast guests for a book recommendation, and we've, we've assembled all of these. It makes for a fascinating reading list. So I'd be really interested to know uh, what book you would add to our reading list so we can put it on our, our Flux Capacitor book club. Okay, so I, I have two answers to the question. Um, you know, I spend most of my time reading policy papers and doing wonky things like that. What a surprise. <laughs> so it's been a, been a long time since I spent time wandering the aisles at, at, at chapters. But um, we're expecting our first grandchild in, in April. So I have gone back to the bookstore ah. recently and I'm spending a lot of time going through the children's books that I used to read to our daughter when she was young. So you know, if I were really asked for what am I reading these days, it, it's books like Harry McClary from Donaldson's Dairy. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that's what you want to put on the reading list. Um, so let me offer one up. And it's it's called Who Ate the First Oyster? The Extraordinary People Behind uh, the Greatest Firsts in History by Cody Cassidy. And what's really interesting about this is that uh, Cassidy... Um, this is a popular writer, but basically using um, uh, insights out of uh, modern insights out of DNA, um, you know, takes a sort of anthropologist view of mm -hmm. how technolo uh, technological developments came about and in part how they impacted um, hum human evolution and societal um, uh, change. And um, I'm not going to spoil the story, but... Um, the whole notion of how fire allowed us to um, to advance our evolution was really quite important. This, this notion that cooking food mm -hmm. reduces the amount of time to get energy into your body and makes it more easily digestible. Mm. Um, there's a direct link between the technologies and you know, the, the way that, that we've developed. And um, so I recommend it to anybody who, it, who like me, finds it difficult to read from one end of a book to another, um, okay. because I tend to pick something up, read a bit of it, put it down and come back um, days or sometimes weeks later. But mm -hmm. Who Ate the First Oyster is broken into, you know, a bunch of very succinct stories about different technologies and posits who it was that was the first person to have uh, have uh, cracked that technology, so I I highly recommend it, and I think I find it interesting. Great airplane reading, oh. and um, you know one of a series of books that the Cassidy's written. Fantastic! All right, so it's who ate the first oyster? The extraordinary people behind the greatest firsts in history by Cody Cassidy. What a what a great addition to the to the reading list. Thank you very much for that, Stephen. 
Well, and I I went over your list, so I, I have a few books that I need to read now too. So thank you for that. <laughs> it's a, it's that this this is actually an, an interesting side benefit, frankly, of of doing the podcast is is getting some really good recommendations for books. Stephen, listen, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to 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 join the podcast. It was a it was a it was a fascinating deep dive on transportation. Yeah, thank you. I hope we didn't get too wonky and um, and obtuse, but. Um, it's it's a it's an interesting story and it's got lots of threads. I think the listener is used to a little bit of policy wonk on the on the podcast. So right. <laughs> appreciate Thanks it. So Thanks much. very much. All right. Bye bye. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future episodes. Please take the time to rate the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. And let me know what you think of the Flux Capacitor. You can find me on Twitter or X as at Brad Bradley. The website for this pod is thefluxcapacitor.ca, and it includes links for this episode on the show page, this being episode 92. And while you're there, check out the book club page, which provides info on and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on the Flux Capacitor, including... Stephen's recommendation, Who Ate the First Oyster? The Extraordinary People Behind the Greatest Firsts in History by Cody Cassidy. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.